Today we celebrate the Feast of Trinity Sunday, and for some reason I was thinking about an old conversation I had with a cousin of mine once. Late at night, one day, we were uh, sitting around on the back patio, and he came up with this question that he thought was kind of a gotcha. He said, who made God? Um, And I tried to explain to him, well, no one made God. Uh, It used like Thomas Aquinas' sort of understanding of God as the one necessary being, being itself. I don't know if you've ever heard anything like that, but it just wasn't coming across because in his mind, okay, well, God made everything, but what's behind God? And it gets to a question that it, it applies to our life so directly, but it seems like such a high-minded thing that um, all of existence that we look around at, it's all contingent. It all needs a cause. Something had to have happened for the state of affairs that we live in every single day to be the case. But with God, it is not so. So like basically the Thomas Aquinas argument is that we cannot have an infinite regression of causes. So you were made by your parents, your parents were made by their parents all the way back. And you go back, eventually there's Adam and Eve, but then where did they come from? And where did the world come from? Where did the sun come from? All of that. It's like chains on a chandelier. You know, every sing- or links in a chain, that every link relies on the link above it to be hanging in air. But there has to be some anchor, some ceiling, some hook that's like not moving, that, doesn't, that is not relying on something else to hold it up in order for the entire link, for the whole chandelier to stay in the air. And that's what Thomas Aquinas says is the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. Ipsum esse subsistence, he says in Latin. The sheer act of to be itself. Okay, so simple enough, right? But we can't imagine it because all, everything we look at is contingent. Everything that we see is just a link in that chain. And so we imagine God must be like some big link. But what's the big link that holds him up? Well, nothing. This gets to the deep philosophical question that may sound like gobbledygook, but is really the heart of the matter. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does anything exist? Why isn't it simply that nothing exists? Why are we able to even conceive of the idea of nothing? Why is there something here thinking and asking that question? It's because ipsum esse subsistence, the sheer act of to be itself, the ground of being, needs no explanation. It simply is. Okay, so that's the God Yahweh, I am who am. When Moses asks him in the burning bush, what, what name should I tell the people is the name of the God that revealed this to me. Yahweh, I am who am. I am the ground of being. I am to be itself. I'm the reason anything exists. And that's what makes monotheism, by the way, different than other, all the other polythe- polytheistic religion, the gods, lowercase g, are nothing like the God we believe in. So I... Common atheist argument will be like, well, you Christians are atheists about every single God except Jesus, right? You're, you're atheists about Thor and Zeus and, and uh, whatever other gods there were in the ancient world, the, the millions of gods people have believed in. You don't believe in them. I simply don't believe in your God either. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about really strong superhuman beings up on a mountain. We're talking about the invisible ground of all existence. Okay, the God of the philosophers. But he's also a God who reveals himself in the Bible. He comes to us. 
But this is what made the Jews so different, that not, God is not the sun or the moon or the stars or the ocean. He made all of those things, and he holds them in being as a creator. But in the fullness of time, when Jesus comes, all of a sudden a new layer is added to this mystery. That Jesus, who walks around acting and talking like God himself, even though he's in human flesh. And people respond to that. Some are attracted to it. Some are repelled by it. Remember when the, they lowered the paralytic down through the, um, the ceiling because the crowd around Jesus was listening to him and trying to get miracles from him? And they lowered him down on a mat right in front of Jesus in the middle of his house. And he said, Child, your sins are forgiven. And immediately the scribes and Pharisees say, Who but God alone can forgive sins? It's in the Gospel of Mark. That's exactly the question. Who but God alone can forgive sins? And yet here Jesus is, this 30-year-old rabbi, a carpenter, forgiving sins, and then ratifying that, showing that he has the ability to do that by saying, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? And immediately this paralyzed guy gets up on his own two feet, takes his mat and walks home. There's some new revelation happening. When Jesus was baptized, the clouds opened and the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples, Whoever has seen the Father has seen me. The Father and I are one. So somehow this God, this ground of all being, the reason anything exists, is here in the flesh acting and talking like God, but we're able to see him. But at the same time, he goes off to a deserted place to pray to God, presumably, right? God himself, the Son, is talking to the Father, right? Even in that interaction at the the transfiguration or the baptism, when this is my beloved Son, we see the separation between the Father and this. The Father is speaking about and to the Son. The Spirit is this third person. And yet they are always one. And not to make the mystery even more confusing, Jesus is up on the cross, God crucified for us. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's buried in the tomb, dead. But then on the third day rises again. There's some some weird distinction happening between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But at the same time, this, this unity so what the Christian mystery is, why we think the Trinity is, is so important, um, is because it's something we never could have imagined or discovered ourselves, that the, the ground of all being, we can, we can reason to that. You may not find it convincing, you may not believe there is such a thing as God, but the philosophers got there just the same as the Jews and the Christians have gotten there. It's reasonable to believe in God. But it's unimaginably super rational. It's not irrational, but it's beyond our ability to reason to the idea that the ground of all being is himself a relationship, a communion. That in some way the, the son relies on the father. They're, not, they're like almost links in a chain, aren't they? The son is begotten by the father. And the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. As if they're caused, not uncaused. But we say in the creed very specifically consubstantial with the Father. The Son is not um, made by the Father. He's begotten, not made. They're not like links in a chain that, that need each other, but they're one ground of being that itself is a loving interpersonal communion. Okay, so this is very, very complicated, very technical, but it matters 
Just the same way as like you participate in the economy and I don't really know what a dollar is, <laughs> what that is or why that works, but I have them and I give them to people and they give me things for them. I don't understand the whole inner workings of the, of, of the economy or the internet. I don't really understand how my iPhone works, but I open it up and I'm on the internet and I can communicate with people. Like the, there's, there's technicalities and stuff that we no, don't necessarily understand, but we can enjoy and participate and benefit from that. It's a beautiful thing to study Trinitarian theology. If you ever get a chance to take a course in theology or read a book on the Trinity, it's a beautiful thing. But even if you don't understand it, even if it sounds um, too high to, to comprehend, well, first of all, it is. But there are many implications that, that matter for our lives. One is this, that we are made for and by love. God is love. It's not just a sentimental thing that, oh, God really loves us. He's a really nice guy. God is love. The ground of all being, the reason anything is here, is because of love. Everything's an outgrowth of a perfect interpersonal communion of self-giving love. And so is it any wonder that our lives make no sense to us if we do not have love? If we do not feel loved unconditionally and feel responsible for giving away ourselves in self-sacrificing love. That's the meaning of life. That's the meaning of the cosmos, is love. And the second important implication is that God does not need us. Although God is one, he's not lonely. He's perfect. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. Together, their love that binds, us, binds them is the third person, the Trinity. They don't need anybody else. They have everything they need but they have opened their community, opened their communion of love to pour out into us. The only reason you're sitting here, the only reason you have breath in your lungs is because God loves you and he wants you to enjoy life, the fullness of life. He wants to give you his communion, give you his perfect love. And so we do not need to earn it. This is one of the great tricks of the devil is that either God does not love you and therefore you need to go abandon him and go off on your own and try to find happiness yourself. Or since you've done that, there's no way that he could ever take you back. You know, unless you really like groveled and, and, and figured it out and earned your love so that he would pay attention to you. But this is the great mystery is that unlike the economy and the internet, we are not just like little atoms insignificant atoms, interchangeable, that if you got out of the economy, it doesn't really matter. We got a big economy. You don't, you don't need to be a participant in order for this big machine to work. The Trinity is not like that. Although it's something way bigger than us, infinite, and we are finite, although he does not need us, he has chosen us. And that's the great mystery revealed in Christ, is that he wants us in this life of the Trinity. He wants us to live in and through the Son, in and through the Spirit, to cry out, Abba, Father, to call this ground of being, this unimaginably magnificent and majestic God, our Dad, our Father. That's how intimately he wants us to be involved in his life. And it's not just that we cannot, it's not just that we, we don't need to earn his love. We cannot earn it, and we may not earn it. It's like he's got us in his arms as a little baby. And as a parent, we expect him to say, like, get a job, do something productive. It makes no sense. He's chosen us. He's adopted us, St. Paul says, as his sons and daughters. 
And so we may not earn his love. If we come to him with some kind of thing and we say, God, love me because I did this, he'll, he'll say, that's an idol. Smash it. Come to me with your heart that I may give you life. God is gift. And so as we come to this Eucharist, the, the ultimate gift of self that God has given us in Jesus to be a part of him, to, to take on his flesh, his spirit, and to become the son, to become the body of Christ ourselves, the church, just surrender everything, or even our desire to, to completely understand and comprehend. Um, let's give up these silly questions, who made God or, or, or whatever. Like the mystery of existence, the mystery of being in the first place is a sheer gift. And what's been revealed to us in Christ is that he wants to give us this gift in abundance.